So it's the combination of perception, cognition, and action, because intelligence, one way or another, has these three components. In some sense, AI, because of this overarching kind of perception, cognition, and action, became a science and engineering of components. Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. In this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Manuela Veloso, the head of artificial intelligence research at JP Morgan. Dr. Veloso is a world-renowned expert in the fields of robotics and artificial intelligence, and she's an advocate for women in STEM. We recorded this while she was out of the country and unfortunately experienced some sound issues for the first part of the conversation. Please bear with us as I think you'll get a lot out of the discussion. Manuela, thank you so much for joining us on the Women on the Move podcast. It's great to have you on. Thank you very much for having me. So I would love to start out by really understanding your background and your early education. Can you tell us how did you get into engineering and computer science? Very good. So I always loved math when I was a kid, or let's be more honest, arithmetic when I was a kid. And when I, as I grew up, I wanted to be a teacher, a math teacher, actually, except that my father is a mechanical engineer. And he said, no, why aren't you an engineer instead of a math teacher, in quotes, only? So I became an engineer. My mom also encouraged it a lot. And I became an electrical engineer. And that's what I, I studied in Lisbon, in Portugal. And my bachelor's, which in Portugal was a five-year program, so was all in math, calculus one, calculus two, calculus three, all sorts of like uh, algebra one, algebra two, algebra three, and running and studying uh, electrical engineering. And then after I finished my bachelor's, I did a master's in computer science, and uh, one in electrical and computer engineering, and another one then in computer science at Boston University. I came to the States in 1984. And basically, I then did a PhD in computer science in, uh, at Carnegie Mellon University. The transition from electrical engineering to computer science was because I started understanding the power of computers, and in particular, to actually reason about things and represent knowledge and be able to help people with a lot of their tasks. Well, it sounded like your parents were hugely influential to you, which is amazing. What about any other role models? And in particular, were there any women mentors that helped you along the way? I have to tell you that my math teacher when I was in high school was remarkable. And she was my role model in terms of like education and love for the science of math. My mom was also a role model in the sense that uh, although she did not have a degree in engineering or computer science, she always uh, kind of like made me think that I can do whatever I want and I can do uh, what I like to do and I should aim high. And tell us then a little bit about robotics and how you got more direct into that field. So think about me, young and uh, lots of engineering, passion for engineering. And then I did a PhD thesis at Carnegie Mellon, uh, trying to study how computers could help making decisions. A simple example is route planning, you know, the, the ways that tells us go left, go right. So the planning of the route, but notice that ways gives you a route or plans, and my thesis was also a planning thesis, 
but it does not execute the plans. So after I finished my PhD, I became really intrigued by executors of these actions that the planners were generating. These executors have to be also machines, and that's how I became interested in robotics, was because the robots, the mobile robots, would be the executors of these plans that the thinker, the AI machinery, was generating. So somehow I became interested in robotics only because of my interest on seeing these plans that were created theoretically and eventually through a generation of sequence of actions being executed. And I have to tell you that I never read a single science fiction book. I did not know Asimov in those days. I was not a fan of Star Trek, nothing, or Star Wars, nothing. So I really only cared about robotics from a very kind of like a, how do you say, AI point of view, so that the cycle of getting data using data to make decisions and then execute the decisions, which AI in some sense is, is like humans, an integration of perception, cognition, and action. And I thought that I needed the robots to be able to close this loop of perception, the sensors of the robot, cognition, all the decisions of which actions they should take to achieve specific goals, and really the execution. I love that. That is really intriguing. Well, it sounds like you took your passion for this and really made this come to life in this robotics soccer competition that you helped to get off the ground called RoboCup. And RoboCup has often been seen as a real turning point in robotics and AI. So can you tell us about this? What was it? Why was it focused on soccer? And what did this mean to you? Yeah, so... You have to think about 1997, 1996, we barely had the internet, uh, no way did we know about iPhones or anything, and there was this urge that I had with my PhD students in those days, like I was saying, to execute plans, to have things that would like really uh, do things. So the question became, what, how do we do this? And I was fortunate to be in a group of researchers, academic researchers, and I was fortunate they were all robotics people, like I was in those days, trying to bring tasks of robots. And somehow, soccer came out as the, the framework in which these robots would uh, be developed. And think about this. We were not doing autonomous driving in those days, uh, though at CMU there were other people. And this robot software came as something that would unify a lot of the research worldwide. And also the robot software challenge in those days brought for the first time these multi-robots because it was teams of robots. You cannot imagine how fascinating this was because even the autonomous driving was a single drive, a single car moving around. They never had to, they had to worry about the other cars, but they were not coordinating with the other cars in those days. And we kind of started these robots up as a fascinating area to try to see if we could get these robots to work as a team against another team, the adversarial aspect, the team aspect, and actually the robot aspect. So I cannot tell you how wonderful it was that the beginning of robot software 
And then, magically, in some sense, because I believe of the domain of soccer, the whole world adhered. I mean, after like uh, one year, there were like more than 100 teams participating in this RoboCup. Currently, there are 3,000 people every year that come, and it's because we actually bound the number of teams. It's 24 teams per league that are, I don't know how many leagues, is like... Uh, 12 or 13 leagues is like young junior RoboCup junior. And I do believe that the soccer, the choice of soccer, which was not very thought, but it was because it was something that had, so see the soccer thing was very something that enabled us to do AI. Well, because it had clear goals. So it was not chess because AI was also at the beginning tested in chess, in games like chess. It was not chess, but it was, Again, that had you had to score. You had to put this ball into some net. I mean, it was the the chess of robotics, once, uh, one way or another. But none of these robots had legs. They were basically little boxes with wheels and a little kicker in the front, and they would move and chase this ball and just propel the ball or push the ball. Right. But they, they were not legs. And even as of today, we have little humanoids, but... They are not really like big runners like Cristiano Ronaldo, for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you brought together people's love of soccer or football with robotics, and I think that's great. It sounds like you've spawned an industry, frankly, with the RoboCop. So you've been a longtime professor at Carnegie Mellon, where you studied and took a leave of absence about three years ago to become the head of artificial intelligence research at J.P. Morgan Chase. So I'm curious, what led you to come to the corporate sector? I was happily at Carnegie Mellon as actually uh, in those days as head of the machine learning department in the School of Computer Science. So at Carnegie Mellon there's a college, a college of computer science, several departments, and I was always a professor in the computer science department, but then eventually uh, they invited me to be the head of the machine learning department and I was happy there. Except that J.P. Morgan called me explaining basically the this company that was so big, so important, such a, an interesting company that was not born digital. And somehow I had been surrounded by Google, by Amazon, by Twitter, by Microsoft, by IBM, and they were all basically computer companies. So it was really my first interaction with a non-computer company. And I love the people with whom I talked, the leadership of JP Morgan, because of their openness for actually bringing AI technology to the operations and to the, the functioning of the company. So I said, this is it. If I want to try something different in my life, this is it. You know, it took some courage because I was so well positioned and so well set and coming to something I knew nothing about was really a big step. And, uh, but you know, I don't regret it at all. I love it. I really love it. And I continue to love it. And I think there is so much still to do. <laughs> now, so I'm very passionate about my new job at JP Morgan Chase AI Research. Uh, well, we are just thrilled to have you here teaching so many of us what it is you know, that you do and what it is we can all learn from AI. So let's start there. What are the different research projects that you're pursuing on behalf of the bank? You know, tell us about the different areas and maybe pick a few that you think are highest priority. So let me tell you, uh, JP Morgan is a large company 
But the domain of finance is well defined. And in some sense, after one year of being here at JP Morgan, I have understood major pillars or major areas of functioning of the firm. And in particular, I thought that, you know, there are, I mean, and we all know there are, there's a problem of trying to understand predicting and affecting large economic systems. I mean, be it trading, be it countries, be it companies. I mean, there is a problem of these large economic systems. And to tell you frankly, it's, of course, it's not the robot soccer, but there is a lot of like multi-agent, like teams and collaboration and adversaries in this world of finance. So I, I love that parallel to these teams and multi-agent systems. So one area that we have been focused on is like this predicting and affecting large economic systems. And so we model these large economic systems through, through sophisticated simulations, through sophisticated strategies, through, through trying to learn how to handle these different types of adversaries or other agents that are playing in the same markets. So very large area of these economic systems and how can AI impact there? The other area that I think we all also believe it's very important at JP Morgan is the question of data. I was overwhelmed when once we were working with uh, in payments, all say payments, and we got some data and guess what? We got 93 billion records wow. <laughs> of payments. I know, I know. So I'm like looking at this and what in the world? I've never seen 93 billion of anything, right. let alone of records. Even if my images in my robots were gigantic and everything was hard, but you know, it was, it's this data problem at the JP Morgan, all these data opportunities. There are, millions, billions of information that we access, that we save, that we maintain. So there is this thing about how can AI help liberate and make this data available to other places at JP Morgan and bring data from the inside into JP Morgan safely in a way that enables the data to remain private and remain safe. But so we have the economic systems, we have the data, and then we have another area that I think it's really crucial for me. And I did not know I had to face these problems, but the problem of financial crime, fraud, money laundering, and how can AI help to eradicate financial crime is also one of our major research goals, mm. aspirational goals. Because, you know, after all, there is a lot of concern about keeping these criminals and our onboarding and everything safe. The money laundering detection, all of that is a big problem. So now we have AI to try to predict and affect these economic systems, AI to try to liberate these data safely, these enormous amounts of data, and AI to try to eradicate these financial crimes. These are three major research goals. You know, when it comes to using AI for things like gender equity, which is something we talk about all the time, how can we use this technology to really help women, whether that's female employees or female customers and their financial health, for example? One thing that we need to understand is that somehow, even when we hire, you know, in my team at JP Morgan, people keep saying, oh, women, we don't have women in computer science, we don't have women in AI. And guess what? Basically, half of my team is yeah. women. 
It's because I refuse to accept that you're going to find these women or what. There is nothing at all. When we have a slate of candidates, I always require that half of the candidates be women. I mean, go and find them. I don't know. I mean, there have to be. And there are. And there are fantastic women. And so what I'm saying is that uh, in terms of women and diversity, it's a question of us as the people who recruit, the people that lead teams, to open our hearts and, you know, and to really make them the few, if there are few women in the world, that they come to us, that they come and work at J.P. Morgan. Another thing that I have been always uh, very encouraging is that we do have in our mission at J.P. Morgan also, establishing strong collaborations with academia because of the talent. Being 30 years, 30 plus years in academia, I know that there are tremendous students, uh, PhDs, masters, that really know what they are doing in terms of technology, and I want them to come to JP Morgan. So I establish all these uh, collaborations with universities. And once again, guess what? I have basically 50% collaborations with women faculty. Maybe not 50, but close to 50. So I'm always looking for everything that I do, be it my team, be it my collaborations. It's always about finding and exposing these women. So I tell one thing to everyone who is listening. It's our duty as women. We cannot be pointing at the man that don't do this. Well, if they don't do, that's their problem. I don't care. But we as women try to bring as much visibility, as many opportunities, as much paths for women. And, you know, women have to be kind to other women more than, I mean, much more until we are all 50-50, you know, I don't know. So I've been having these attitude or this way of thinking for many, many, many years. And here at JP Morgan, I, I mean, I would not, I was not going to change. And here it has been like that. As you described, this is a very deliberate, constant focus. You can't take your foot off the gas. And you, I think what you're describing is you're looking at them from the student level, from the faculty level, from a hiring level at more senior levels. I think that's exactly right. We all have to do that. So for people who are not familiar with AI, how would you describe it and explain it? So AI is a science and engineering of trying to have artificial devices like computers now, one day it could be like quantum or it doesn't matter, some artificial devices, non-human devices, to be able to uh, perform tasks that are performed by humans. Basically is the combination of being able to identify tasks, eventually knowing that those tasks are tasks that humans can do, and then have these artificial devices doing this. I want to add one more thing. AI is this combination of data, reasoning, and actuation and execution. So it's a combination of perception, cognition, and action, because intelligence, one way or another, has these three components. In some sense, AI, because of this overarching kind of perception, cognition, and action, became a science and engineering of components. And ultimately, we'll put all the components together. But that's why you see people, some people doing AI only machine learning. One thing we should know after this conversation is that AI is not only machine learning. It's not machine learning. Machine learning is a component of AI. And and machine vision is part of AI. Natural language processing is part of AI. And all sorts of planning, searching, reasoning, all sorts of uh, negotiation, all of those game theory, these are all parts of AI. 
And it's not only about thinking that machines can classify data and do machine learning, which is perfect and great because there is no intelligence without learning, but there's more to AI than just machine learning. So Manuela, you've described a future in which humans and intelligence systems are inseparable, and you've called this exchange of information symbiotic autonomy. Tell us what that is and how close are we to actually realizing this? So what happened was that when I was developing robots at Carnegie Mellon, these robots would move down these corridors and then they would face a closed door or they would have to press an elevator button or someone talked with them and they didn't understand what people were saying, the speech algorithm didn't process. It seemed that it was always these obstacles and they would never be autonomous. They would never be on their own. And then one day... uh, I decided that we wouldn't be able to solve this problem with more arms for the robots or better language technology. There would always be these limitations, intrinsic limitations in the robot and cognitive limitations of these robots. And then I decided that uh, this was a very big breakthrough, that these robots would be asking for help from humans. This was a major, a major step, 2000 and I don't know, maybe 10 or 11, in which the robots at Carnegie Mellon would move down these corridors. So these were the cobot robots. And basically, if there was an obstacle in front of them, they would say, please, can you help me? Please excuse me. Get out of my way. Open the door. Press the elevator button. They became autonomous, but asking for help. And therefore, that's what I call this symbiotic autonomy. But when something happens that outside of the scope of what they can do, they ask for help. So I envision in JP Morgan, the systems we build, we are not there yet. They would ask for help. I need more training data. This situation I am facing, nothing of what I was given before covers this particular kind of situation in which I find myself. So please give me more data or tell me what to do here. And then the human and the AI kind of complement their own abilities and their own limitations. I believe, to tell you frankly, that this is the secret of the future. What do you get most excited about when you think of the future of AI and what research topics are you pursuing? I think that AI and what I would love more is this change of culture of people in the sense that we need to perform our jobs aware that computers can help us, AI can help us. So one day, I believe that we will be always asking for assistance from AI. Think about one day if you are going to talk with a financial advisor and how good you would feel, or at least I would feel, if uh, this financial advisor does bring up the fact that uh, they use an AI system to actually make recommendations that can analyze all the data of the past, that can make predictions, that has all these counterfactuals, you kind of say, wow, this is really like something that I trust because you just get this culture of trying to understand that the scale, the scale of the data, the scale of the complexity of the problem is handled not just by that human, who may know a lot, but who knows if that human really, do you trust completely the human? But if the human is equipped with a huge amount of AI technology, I think I will trust more. If I'm talking with someone who is giving me facts about something about the world, 
And I Google a few of them and they are right. And I start trusting this person much more because eventually they are supported by AI. And I want to emphasize one thing before uh, this, because of this change of culture, which is like this. People kind of think about AI like this. Okay, will there be an AI winter? Are we going to one day not have AI? Or are we going to not have uh, the ability to do machine learning or something? I have to tell us all that things are not going to go back. Because the amount of data that we are digitalizing and making available for computers is increasing every day, every day. And therefore, no human can actually process all this information. Not even all our photos. Do you realize we have thousands of photos on our iPhones, create all this data? And how I can't wait that there is a there is Google Photos, there is that, there is that, but still not a very good AI system to help me search these photos. They do a good job, but whatever, but it's still not the best. But so think about that. Data will not stop being gathered, more and more data. And then computing is going to be always more and more powerful. And we are going to start thinking that these machines, these computers help us. And what's the difference between just computers and AI? You know, computers were invented basically to number crunch, to multiply three times a million or three times five. It, they were like number crunching machines to do division and multiplications and all sorts of like arithmetic operations and eventually handle numbers. The moment we switch to thinking that computers can help with decision making, with looking at images, with processing language, with reading text, which negotiation should I do? What should I tell this customer? We are now in the AI world because now it's the use of machines, not these computers, not just for number crunching, but to do all these other functions basically require this ability for the computer to understand the meaning of text, to understand what an image is, to be able to look at all the, Im- the actions. So guess what? We are completely in the world of AI. This is very inspiring to me. I wish I had more of a background in it. That's for sure. The professor and you, what would you like to be your legacy when you think of your students and particularly women? You know, What do you want to convey to them in terms of the importance of this field and what they can do in it? So I have graduated, which means I advised 47 PhD students by the end of this uh, month. What I've told always my PhD students, and they know this, is that somehow respect for the science, respect for people is what is the foundations of education. And uh, this curiosity and believing that problems can be solved. I am even at JP Morgan, you have to tell yourself every time that I find out of a problems, be it the credit card payments, be it like the decisions on loans, be it like the markets, you cannot imagine the urge that I have to solve these problems. <laughs> you know, I am a problem solver. I kind of like to do steps. So one thing I'll tell is like this, AI is a journey. It's not immediate, but we have to start and we have to be in control of these steps of AI. So for that, I also introduced recently with my team these levels of AI. Level zero is everything is done manually. Level one, some parts of it are already automated, the data is being processed and so forth. Maybe up to level four in which everything is automated and so forth. But we have to be happy for the steps we do. Otherwise, AI is always a frustration because we are not there. So it's good to be happy with the steps that we have. And this is true for women in the job. This is true for anyone in the job. This is the advice I always give. 
break the difficult problems into pieces. Try to reward yourself. Be happy when little pieces are accomplished. It's perfectly fine that the big piece is not there yet, but we cannot always like not getting satisfaction for the steps on the way. That's very important. I love that. I think that's a great place to end it. And I think it's something, it's a great lesson we can take in all aspects of our lives. So Manuela, thank you so much for being with us, for teaching us, for being a part of this company and really just doing so much to advance the field. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Manuela Veloso, the head of artificial intelligence research at JP Morgan. I'm so inspired by her curiosity and her belief that all problems can be solved. She's a true pioneer, not only in technology, but in advancing women in STEM. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe so you won't miss any others. For JPMorgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. JPMorgan Chase Bank N.A. is a member of the FDIC.